This and is unorthodox. Gonna... Shut the f- up. <laughs> That's, that stays. And people should know how you actually treat us. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Lulav Shaker at-large, Leah Leibovitz. And our post-high holidays, our post-hagim, Joshua Molina. Heyo! It's great to be back with both of you for our first like pretty standard episode in a long time. We've had a lot of special episodes, so it's great to be back. Jewish holidays, man, they, they come they come at you fast. We're coming in hot with the ordinary. We're leaving Jewish time. We're going back into regular time. Today on the show, we are chatting with Lior Dayan, the creator of the new Israeli TV series, Normal. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he is totally Moshe Dayan's grandson. That idea of larger than life family legacies is something he explores in the new series. So we talk about that with him. We're also interviewing someone very, very special. It is our own Liel Leibovitz. What? Yes, big Jew, Liel Leibovitz. Longtime host, first time guest. I'm excited to interview you because I get I get nervous about interviewing because I feel like uh, I'm always concerned about at what point will the guest realize that I'm dumb. But you know already. <laughs> I, feel like I, I don't have to try to impress you. Well, the reason Liel's on, on the show, we should tell everyone, is because he has a new book coming out. It is How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. It's just about his journey into the Talmud that I know a lot of you have been following along with on his daily show, Take One. The book is here. We are so happy to be talking to you about this. If this year you read only one new book about an old book, <laughs> make it Leo Leibovitz. You could either read the 2,711 pages of the Talmud or this conveniently packaged 230-something page. Very, very short uh, history. It's Chaim's notes, and I honestly really, really appreciate it. So what's going on with the two of you guys? What's the latest in your worlds? Just revving up into a new year of sinning. It's nice to, I like the, the slate. is clean. Yes. <laughs> you paid the dues. But you know, Stephanie, right. you, you, you made it sound in the intro to the show like, we're all done. Nothing more to see here. No more holidays. Where in fact, we are right now in the heart, in the midst of really, truly one of the greatest holidays ever, Sukkot. So here's the deal. On my block on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, there are three homeless shelters. One of these homeless shelters is for people with... Uh, Mild to not so mild mental disorders. And, you know, people hang out around the neighborhood. We we know them. And so this morning, I leave my house to go to shul. And I'm carrying my uh, Arbata Minim, my Lulav and Etrog set. As I walk out, this gentleman is looking at me. And the look in his face says, look, man, I may be in my underwear and wearing a necklace made of Pepsi cans. But you're carrying a giant lemon and something that looks like an oversized asparagus. So... I'm just going to go to the other side of the street because you're kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, like, you get to show, and it's so amazing because, like, in a religion already given to, like, absolute OCD over this very, very intricate way of doing things in just that order, like, you have guys finding, like, hold on, hold on, hold on, man, I'm sorry, but you're shaking it wrong. It's not straight, right, behind the shoulder, left, up, down, right, the... Sephardi custom is upright. Like, and then all these intricate conversations on exactly the ways to shake the lulav, it's so wonderfully crazy making. And it's so like incredibly archaic. It's like everything religion should be. Yeah, completely agree. By the way, going for a little synergy, the tablet has a great article about the only American etrog farmer who happens not to be Jewish. It's amazing. Could you imagine? It kind of looks like a lemon, but it's not. We only use it once a year. It's a very, very, very specific market. That's a great Lenny Kravitz song. American Etrog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, nah, nah. yeah, Pico Boulevard is very interesting this time of year where you can find old men looking at a piece of fruit through a, a loop. <laughs> looking, looking, looking longingly. You might call them fruit loops. <laughs> Just kidding. Boom. That's good. I'm going to use that. <laughs> You know, we've we've cleansed and now we're ready to start complaining. And one of the chief complaints that I've been seeing is about games, about quizzes and games. And this this latest text came in from a friend who sent me a screenshot of his Wordle game that day. Mm. He had tried a word and it, he was told, you know, you get like a little bounce back, not in the word list. It's not it's not a word was Jewry, J-E-W-R-Y. A real word. And those filthy anti-Semites did not recognize jury as, as an actual word? Trial by jury. 
That's literally Yom Kippur. But like we have been hearing from a lot of people about the times they've tried Jewish words and they, they're not accepted in Wordle or in Spelling Bee. And I want to just like take this time to air everyone's grievances. Just the other day, I tried Gebracht and uh, I did nothing. It was like Mishaberach, no? I'm a participant. I do that. I point to that all the time. And there's a, uh, there's a nice, healthy reaction on our Facebook unorthodox group, which everyone should join, by the way. I recently posted that Lech Lecha was not uh, recognized. <laughs> it turns out that was not the pangram. I was outraged, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some of them are funny because you're like, yeah, Talit, of course, maybe that's not, that wouldn't go. But like Aramaic wasn't accepted in spelling bee. And like, that's an actual word. Are there no proper nouns? Is that, what's the problem yeah, here? I think I think Jewry and Aramaic are out because of proper nounism. Look, okay. it delighted me to see that latka was not recognized because we all know it is by far the worst holiday food ever. That is my that is my hot take. I do have to say this was latka, no e at the end, an a at the end. So it's possible that like I, I mean, can you imagine like the Yiddish variations of spellings they must have to go through on the back end of Wordle? Um, someone tried gabai, gabai didn't work. Elul, no Jewish words allowed. By the way, there's also, it occurs to me not to beat a dead horse on this subject, but there's a, probably a serious underpinning to this discussion, which is that I do this kind of thing all the time. The same way I also play Jewish geography when I'm reading an article about somebody of note, both bad or good. I instantly want to know whether the person is Jewish. Like every now and then I realize like, oh, I am a minority and I feel like a minority. And so I, and I feel provincial when I do things like, hey, Lech Lecha isn't in spelling bee. But it's definitely part of me where I realize like, oh, I feel like an outsider sometimes to some extent. I, I love that you tried this. <laughs> It's so charming. He's like, what? Lech Lecha is not recognized. Let me try all the other Parshas in the Torah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Ki Tetze works. And I, I like tweeting or posting things that a, only a niche group will recognize. I, I, I think we should insist that A.J. Jacobs, the chief rabbi of all puzzles, will from now on have to give a hechsher to every word list used by any media publication anywhere else in the world. I will say on the subreddit all about crosswords, there's there, there's a really funny meme someone posted that says, me explaining to NYT puzzle creators that not everyone lives in New York and knows all the city's street names. And someone replies to that saying, crossword puzzles are also my main source of Yiddish vocab. <laughs> Ha, so it go. might actually be like the opposite, right? Like like we're looking to the the New York Times' games to feel othered as a Jew, whereas most people feel like they get so much Yiddish from like Although, things like the look, crossword. This is actually genuinely super fascinating. Who does come up with the word list? Because I imagine it's some kind of combination of word banks that exist somewhere, but is it like software regulated or is there like a word maven whose job it is, like the Oxford English Dictionary, to say like, I'm sorry, Latka, you you don't make the cut this year. I think there's got to be a human being behind it because right? I'm, every day I play the spelling bee and every day there are words that just are words that are in any dictionary that are not included. I will say that I have a, a family text chain with my mom's side of the family. It's Wordle, and it's it's become this beautiful thing. It's my grandparents, it's, it's Grandma Seal, Grandpa Al, my mom and her sisters, me and my sister. It's like a great way of communicating. I also have a family text thread. It's actually, it's my family and Rishikesh Herway, my dear friend <laughs> and puzzle master. He's unbelievable. And we share our results all day. And the most incredible of them are Rishi's ability to solve the daily New York Times crossword in an astonishingly... And, and I will say, on just games in general... Connections, the New York Times Connections game, which I think is fairly new, is fantastic. It's exquisite. I just started playing Connections. I liked Connections. I love it, but I think they should really lean way more into the weird. Like, I don't like it when it's like, table, chair, like, oh, furniture, great. I love it when they're completely subjective, like, you know, uh, latkes, the bus, <laughs> movies, and the category should be things that cost too much these days. Like, they should totally lean into the absolute weirdness. I like when it's generational and my mother complains, how was I supposed to know that crunk was a, a hip-hop <laughs> subgenre? The first one I did was the crunk one. And I was like, it's music. And everyone's like, what? And I was like, yep. Mm. I'm still the youngest right. grandchild here. Still got it. <laughs> Finger on the pulse. Also, Take Josh that, Molina, grandma. Joshua Molina, exactly. possibly while we were recording, but maybe not, you tweeted, life for me has become the challenge to gut through the hours until the new connections puzzle comes out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, I mean, I guess I shared it myself, but now you're amplifying to a bigger audience how pathetic my life is. But yeah, 
Yeah. Because <laughs> it counts down. I finish connections. I'm like, oh, I got it today. I uh, got it in four. And then they starts counting down the uh, the hours until the next one. So I think what we want is for people to tell us the best intergenerational Wordle chat. Like send us screenshots of your Wordle chats. We're going to bring them back. We're going to do it. connections. All we want is that Jewish intergenerational text chain energy. I love it for myself. And I hope everyone else has it. Me too. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Let's get to some News of the Jews. This first story comes to us from one of those websites that if you open it, your computer just goes nuts. This is from The Mirror in the UK. And here's the headline. Birth of first red heifer in 2,000 years fulfills Bible prophecy and signals end of days. So apparently there was a red heifer allegedly born in Israel. Someone tell us what the red heifer means. Enlighten our, our hevruta. I, I choose Liel. <laughs> As the book of Numbers commands us, you okay. <laughs> need a blemishless, spotless red heifer upon which never came a yoke, is the exact basuk, uh, who will be slaughtered and burned outside of the camp. And then the ashes will be mixed with water to create a ritually purifying concoction, which could purify the priest. So if you want a temple, which I do, I pray for it three times a day. I genuinely want it. If you want to see the third temple, you're going to need to have a red heifer. And here we are. If you like the first two temples, you're going <laughs> to love the third one in the series. Dude, the logic. Now, here's the thing. Like, the first one was like a classic. Everyone's in it. The second was like, you know, Godfather 2. It was like the amazing one. The body count was much higher. Like, it was fantastic. The third one usually is like the one that's like a little bit funny, a little bit self-referential, you know, a bunch of cameos from like old stars that you would not expect. It would be great if the third temple were funny. The third temple, I think, is going to be really, really funny. But this is like the three little pigs, right? Like this one, you are not going to be able to huff and puff and blow (laughs) this one down. But I love these stories because you're like, if you think things are weird in the world right now, (laughs) like there's always someone being like, the end is near. And we've gotten like we found the unblend. They need to take the the heifer in for to be examined to see if it's in fact blemish free. And this is like somewhere in Israel where they're that I guess are breeding red heifers. There's actually literally an organization in Jerusalem called the Temple Institute, whose entire job it is to screen uh, bovine (laughs) candidates for perfect red hefferdom, which is like the world's weirdest beauty contest, and see if they're indeed blemishless. I love things that that remind us. If things seem crazy now, they can always get crazier. But another shocking discovery also in Israel, let me uh, read this headline to you guys from the Israel National News, Shabbos Goy of 30 years found to be Jewish. Rabbinate rules man community claimed was not Jewish for 30 years, maybe buried in a Jewish cemetery after investigation. (laughs) So basically, this is a guy who was the Shabbos Goy, which is a term sort of loosely describing non-Jews who do a lot of the things that Jews can't do on the weekends, like turn on the lights if you need. A population that that has included, you know, Elvis Presley. Yes, it's a it's a truly That's righteous, right. truly righteous among the Gentiles. But um, it turns out the guy dies. The family wants him buried in a Jewish cemetery, and it, they actually can prove that he's Jewish. I love this story so much. He was a double agent. You've you've done your bit. You're okay now. You you could be a Jew now. You <laughs> could rest. But thanks for turning the lights on. The whole thing of the Shabbos Goy is like really weird because like sometimes, and and I see this with a lot of other observant Jews in my building, like. They walk in and it's a super hot day and, you know, they live in, say, the seventh floor. And they kind of look at the doorman and some of the doorman, like, know. This is on Shabbat like, you're talking about. Go, yeah, on Shabbat and, and go and press the, the elevator buttons for them. But if not to, like, have to ask someone, excuse me, sir, would you mind pressing two buttons for me? It's like, it's kind of a weird dynamic. I once got stuck on an escalator on Shabbos. I was stuck for seven hours. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, would you not take, would, would someone not take an escalator on Shabbat because it moves? That is a great halachic question. What about a people mover if you're at the airport? I would answer that an escalator as well as a people mover probably has the same halachic stature as a Shabbos elevator, which is if no human activity is involved in making this thing go, if you do not will it or make it move from place A to place B on your behalf, if it just moves and there's no payment required like a bus say, yeah, why wouldn't you be able to take it? It's just a moving sidewalk. We discussed the idea of a Shabbat elevator. We casually mentioned it. It's it's not necessarily something that everyone has, is familiar with. And this is like at certain hospitals and in certain apartment buildings with large Jewish populations, 
on Shabbat, the elevators automatically stop at every floor. So if you get in, you do not have to press the button. Now, something interesting happened to a friend of mine who lives also on the Upper West Side in an apartment with a lot of Shabbat observant people. The doorman will push the button for you, which to me is like, I know why we do that, but it makes me feel like uncomfortable that, oh, they can do it, but I can't. So a friend of mine who's Jewish, not Shabbat observant, gets to his building, gets in the elevator. A gentleman who, you know, keeps Shabbat comes in sort of after him. And the doorman comes over to do the door. And my friend basically is like, oh, don't worry, I got it, and goes to push the button. And the guy's like, no, that doesn't work for me. Because my friend was Jewish. Like, you can't have a Jew press the button for you, even if they're not Shabbat observant. That's, That's right. What a faith we have here. Truly. I do know my friend Irene has... Shabbat mode on her stove, which is like another Shabbat thing that Shabbat mode. Yeah, right. It just like cooks. How, how does that to work? It just it just makes chulent for you. It, it automatically cooks. <laughs> it automatically makes chicken. I was about to say, no matter what you put in there, there's <laughs> it's always a little bit bland. <laughs> <laughs> Hot take. The bland chicken. Just kidding, guys. While we're on food, can I throw in a, a news of the Jews? Yes, please. please. Avadya Yosef, who I believe is the chief, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel. Was passed away was. some time ago. Yeah, I thought the current Sparta uh, rabbi. Who's that? Is it a descendant? It's his grandson. Of He's his son. Sorry, he's his son. Either way, it's a nepo baby. Clearly, nepo oh, rabbi. Does nepo does, rabbi. does it always passed on like the monarchy from father to son? Uh, it's frequently passed. <laughs> he came out with a statement saying that eating non-kosher food makes you stupid. <laughs> I actually really <laughs> love it. Genuinely, freaking love it. When rabbis say like outlandish things like this, because <laughs> while you know clearly a, 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 a outrageous provocation, let's kind of like lean into this. So, keeping kosher was a very strange process for me and a very big moment of revelation because it didn't happen as a result of any real thinking or planning. I just decided to do it long before I understood why we're doing it. And in fact, we don't really understand why we do it, which is the whole point of it. And this constant contemplation and this constant asking of like, okay, what's in it? Am I allowed to have this? What is it made of? How is it cooked? How is it prepared? This, on the one hand, level of obsession with this detail. And on the other hand, the notion that, you know, I used to walk and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a person with healthy appetites, uh, a gentleman of noble proportions. I used to walk like down the street of New York and like see a sandwich shop. And I've, I would have already eaten lunch and be like, okay, great. I'll just grab the sandwich. It looks good. Because there's no real, I mean, yes, common sense and, you know, doctor's orders may limit you. But there's no like higher authority. And here you're like, no, no, I actually need to make pointed decisions that every bite that I take is a referendum on who I am and who I want to be. That's kind of great. I, I agree with you. I think it's, it does sanctify the act of eating and makes you think about your body and how you treat it and all those things. And maybe makes uh, you smart. Is that what you're saying? I, and I think it gives you an edge on standardized testing. Yes, for sure. <laughs> but usually when I hear the chief rabbi say something like that, I feel bad for the Jews in general and stop shaming other Jews and their level of observance. That's true. But you know what? Can we not just have one person who just says things like this? Also, do you know what he's dressed like? Do you know what the outfit of the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel is? I don't. Google an image of this person. Oh, I love that hat. Like that silk robe with a golden like filigree. It's fantastic. And like that awesome purple hat and the dark it's pretty sunglasses. Great. Yeah. That's baller. You know, super they, say, they say dress for the job you want. Like this is 100%. <laughs> The job I would like to have. And if you dress like this, you could say whatever you want. Shame whoever you want. You have the better outfit. You win. <laughs> it, it is a good outfit. All right, I'll give him that. Time for some pod biz. Unpacking the book, the series I host with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum is starting back up this month. On March 28th, I will be at the Jewish Museum in conversation with authors Jordan Salama and Elizabeth Graver about Mizrahi and Sephardic diaspora journeys. Then in April, also at the Jewish Museum, I'll be talking with Rabbi Diana Fursco and author Maurice Samuels about what their new books tell us about the continued rise of anti-Semitism from Dreyfus to today. 
In May, we're heading to Zoom for a virtual conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about their new books. You can find all of that info and more at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. Our second Beautifully Jewish Craft Along is underway. To join our growing community, head to tabletm.ag slash beautiful. I also wanted to share this delightful review on Apple Podcasts. For this non-American goy, Unorthodox is a weekly compulsion. Three very different characters deliver no-holds-barred perspectives from the Jewish part of people's identities. Well, in Liel's case, Jewish slash American slash Israeli slash his own universe. All are welcome and all can contribute. Why only four stars? Sometimes I can't keep up with the spoken delivery speeds, a problem when you've become a global phenomenon, as you have. Well, non-American goy, we love you, even if we talk too fast for you. The rest of you, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And you know Joshua Molina will be reading it, so make it a good one. Okay, back to the show. Our Jewish guest of the week is the best we could do on such short notice. Uh, he drinks a lot. He loves reading the Talmud. And now he wrote a book about it. It's uh, it's me. Hi. Leo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Your book is about to be out, How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. It has a really fun, brightly colored cover. Brightly colored is, is the first the first words that come to mind when you think about me. You're basically making it fun and accessible. Other words to use to describe you. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly right. And the Talmud. It is a great read. And I appreciated that I could read a book about the Talmud that didn't feel daunting, that was welcoming and brought you in. Well, thank you. It also now appears to me that literally every word that you could use to describe the Talmud, you could always use to describe me. <laughs> you know, too much, really complicated, <laughs> frustrating at times, intense, <laughs> interesting. Why did not you just tell me this fart joke? There's, there's a lot in there is what I'm saying. Before we even get to the book, refresh for our listeners, your own personal journey, right? We started the show a bajillion years ago. You were in many ways a different person. You've been on this journey and a lot of it has been buttressed by... The st your daily study of the Talmud, which you picked up about three and a half years ago. So tell us how you encountered the Talmud and how this very old book really did become a blueprint for you in your life today. So uh, our story begins, as, as so many stories about cataclysm begin, uh, in November of 2016. <laughs> I was about to turn 40. I was running the New York City Marathon for the first time. I was sending a note to my Rebbe, Leonard Cohen, just before the race, saying, I'm so excited. This is great. You know, I'm going to run listening to your music and received a very sweet note in return and ran that race. And there were all these, you know, funny signs because it was like three days before the election. And everyone was in a great mood and all of New York came together. And I said to myself, I ran the marathon. I'm emailing with Leonard Cohen. Everything is going to be great, right? That was Sunday. On Tuesday, a certain election went down. I spent Wednesday, which is my actual 40th birthday, asking myself, what the fuck had just happened? And so feeling really overwhelmed, I went out on Thursday uh, for dinner with my wife and said, hey, it's been a, a heck of a week. I need a little break. And, and no sooner had I put that first sip of martini to my lips that I received a text that Leonard had passed away. And thereby began a couple of really difficult years uh, for myself as well as for all of us collectively. And I found myself really yearning, to quote the Rebbe, for a manual for living with defeat. And I stumble onto the Talmud, as so many of us have before, which is really kind of a fascinating book. Because if you think about what this thing is and, and where it came from, it is really a book predicated on two astonishing insights. Here we are, uh, the year is 70. And the temple that had stood for 586 years at the core of all Jewish life has burned to a crisp. And all of a sudden, you can't do all these things that are basically the essence of the Jewish religion for, you know, six centuries. And the rabbis get together and they talk and they come up with two truly stunning, like unfreaking believable insights. The first insight is that you could take all of Judaism, the entire religion, and pack it into a book, 
which is already kind of like a mind-bogglingly clever and amazing idea because, yeah, we can't worship at the temple, but we could describe in great detail what the worship was like. So, you know, thousands of years later, you tap any random, you know, learner on, on the shoulder and say, hey, could you tell me what type of garment the priest needs to wear at the temple on a Wednesday? And yeah, you would be able to do that. That would have been enough, right? Dayenu. But then the rabbis had a second and even more astonishing insight. And the insight was this. If we write down a list of rules, right? Okay, guys, here is what we do. Almost immediately, because we're human beings, but, but even more particularly, because we're Jews, there's going to be someone that says, well, maybe back in their day, it was considered work to light fire, but it doesn't take that much work to turn on an electricity switch. So I'm going to do that because it's not the same thing because that's how we think. And so rather than writing down laws, they recorded arguments, inviting you as soon as you open the book to jump right in, which is really an invitation to think about the way you think to think about how it is that you see the world, how it is that you evaluate information, how it is that you address and process other people's points of view and attitudes. And it is such a comforting and, and soothing and nourishing and sometimes maddening and always amazing journey. And I found myself sucked right into it. And so when the seven and a half year long cycle known as Daf Yomi, in which we read one page of the Talmud a day, uh, ended three and a half years ago, I did the obvious thing and not only jumped right in, but also decided to write a book to bring the Talmud to people who may otherwise have been intimidated by it. You describe the Talmud in your book as perhaps the greatest self-help book ever written, which I love. And you also go into uh, at length describing how it's sort of a conversation among great minds over the course of centuries presented almost as if they're talking to each other contemporaneously. So here's my dumb question. Like, why is the Talmud done? I think maybe the Jerusalem Talmud was redacted around 400 and the Babylonian around 500. Like, why didn't the conversation continue? Why have we lost centuries of the great minds and just at the risk of sounding woke, female minds that might have been added to the conversation? Why was there an ending to the Talmud? Why isn't it a continuing document? But the conversation did not end at all. The conversation continues and continues. So first of all, you've, you've alluded to something because, of course, again, being Jews, everything has to be five times more complicated uh, than it needs sure. to be. There, There isn't one Talmud. There are two. There's the Yerushalmi, uh, the Jerusalem uh, Talmud, and the Bavli, which is just the famous one. It's the one that we talk about when we talk about the Talmud. My book is almost exclusively about the Bavli. The Talmud also, as anyone who's ever glanced at the page knows, has a really incredible typographical layout. Uh, it has bits of the Mishnah, which is the, the oral law, uh, then a lot of the Gemara, which is later generations commenting on the Mishnah. And then it has all sorts of interpretations. Uh, when we study Talmud, truly, we study what's on the page, but we study a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of other commentators, including Rishonim, who is the earliest generations of scholars, and Achronim, which goes all the way to now. When I truly get into a sugiah or Talmudic issue, I never stop. I would look up to see who else commentated on this? And sometimes the commentators could be 11th century scholars, and sometimes it could be people who live four blocks away, and they could be male and they could be female. That's the genius of the conversation. At some point, you had to have some kind of standardization. So it did stop at some point in time to have some kind of version that everyone could study. But studying it and, and being it and living it totally doesn't mean that you say, oh, uh, cutoff dates, you know, 1486. So if you came in 1538, sorry, man, or if you're a woman or if you don't live in one of the approved lands. No, this is the conversation's the point in <laughs> Babylonia, where there are so currently a lot of Jews. Tell us about this idea of the Talmud as a self-help book, because I think a lot of us, you know, even if we listen to your daily show, a lot of the things in there are like, if your cow does this and my cow does this, it does seem in many ways to be a very, very, very old text. Tell us some of the ways in which you found this to be not just relatable to our own lives, but something that actually could help guide us through our own very, very, very modern lives. Astonishingly relatable to our own lives. So yeah, look, my first insight as I started reading it, and it's an insight that has grown stronger with every day and with every page, 
is that this, as Joshua so succinctly put it, truly is humanity's first and to date greatest self-help book ever written for the very simple reason that it touches on virtually every aspect of human life. Do you like to talk about poop? It's in there in great quantities. Uh, would you like to talk about how to be a better husband or wife? Yep, we got that. Uh, how to deal with grief, how to be a better friend, how to do your taxes. Uh, literally any human pursuit is discussed and debated at great length, which means that anyone and everyone could find something beautiful and relevant and inspiring in the Talmud. And so I wanted to write the kind of book that not only introduced people to the Talmud and recounted the history of how the Talmud came to be written and also introduced people to these unbelievable superheroes who are the rabbis, uh, some of whom were these crazy colorful characters like a gladiator slash cannibal turned super wise rabbi named Reish Lakish or an illiterate uh, goat herder who at 40, because he fell in love with a rich man's daughter, went out and became the greatest Torah scholar of all time, Rabbi Akiva, but also a book that would capture this amazing energy of thinking seriously about all that is human. And so every chapter in this book opens with a modern-day anecdote, including how the founder of Weight Watchers found inspiration in classical Jewish texts, or how the worst disaster in American history in the early 20th century led to the creation of the five stages of grief that in turn were also deeply inspired by the Talmud. And from these principles, really use the questions themselves. How do we think about friendship? How do we think about love? How do we think about marriage? How do we think about our bodies? Dive right down into the Talmud and see not only what it has to say, because as I said, this is not a book of solutions. It won't be like, well, you know, uh, when it comes to the body, here are six things you need to do right now to love yourself. It, it's not Cosmo, but rather it will give you a new way of thinking about pretty much everything that is truly inspiring. Here's a classic example, one of my favorite stories about Rabbi Hillel the Elder, who together with uh, Emma Watson coined, you know, uh, <laughs> if not now, when, if not me, then who, you know, all those, all those famous sayings on the internet. Here he is, this great rabbi sitting surrounded by his followers. And he gets up and he says to them, gentlemen, I am going to perform a major mitzvah. And the students get super excited. This is, this is the goat, right? The greatest of all time. This is the person from whom they learn. This is their rabbi. And he's going to teach them something great and cool and new. And Hillel gets up and he goes to the bathroom. And the students are standing there outside the door. They're completely astonished. The rabbi goes number two. And then he uh, emerges. And they look at him, kind of, you know, a little bit teed off. And they said, dude, like, rabbi, what's this? Like, you said you're going to make, a, like, a big mitzvah. And you just went number two. And he looks at them and says, and if I couldn't go to the bathroom, do you think I would be able to pray? Basically saying to them, if I can't poop, I can't pray. Teaches them a lesson that everything about us is holy. Every aspect of our body, there isn't a body-soul duality. Our goal isn't to transcend this, you know, disgusting meat puppet in which we're imprisoned. It's to embrace it. It's to understand that everything about us is holy, including our most base desires, appetites, excretions, etc. So tell us a little bit about what our, our listeners will find in the book. Tell us a little bit about some of the stories that people are going to hear. So look, obviously, you're completely right. If you open the Talmud to any random page, uh, you are very likely to find some discussion of some incredibly intricate, you know, halachic and or legal question that would just boggle the mind. Um, what you will find in this here book in a short and punchy form is a, a sort of linear history of how this book came to be written because it was written over hundreds and hundreds of years by generations and generations of rabbis that were not only in conversation with one another, but also responding to world history. So the Roman Empire, everyone thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a day, right? Uh, so the Roman <laughs> Empire makes a bunch of cameos here and Christianity makes a bunch of cameos here. All these things that are happening in world history and influencing the way Jews are thinking and talking about the world. There are stories of the rabbis themselves, including Meir and Bruria, 
one of Judaism's greatest husband-wife power couples. He was the wisest rabbi of his generation, and she was the only female Tana, or sort of like founding mother of the Talmud, so wise that she is a woman mentioned on par with the male rabbis, which again is like an astonishing thing because, you know, this book has been edited, right? It's been kind of called by generations of, of men. It would have been very, very easy to write her out and be like, I'm sorry, like, this is just a, a guy's club. But she's not. She's in the book. And frequently, she's much smarter, much wiser, much kind of more canny than her husband, who was insanely smart. So you'd find all these stories. You'd find a sort of selection of the Talmud's greatest hits uh, in, a, in a kind of accessible way. And most importantly, you would find, I think, not spurious contentions, uh, kind of serious and heartfelt suggestions that when you think about the biggest questions in life, like how to be a better parent, how to be a better spouse, how to learn to love your body, how to come to terms with death, the Talmud is an amazing, amazing, amazing guide. And so I organized a book based on these big questions. And I start every chapter with a, a fairly modern story that takes us right into, uh, into the action to really make the case that if you read the Talmud, that if you engage with the Talmud, that if you wrestle with the Talmud, it will change your life for the better. The book is a fantastic way into the Talmud. And I, I finished it and felt more interested in approaching the Talmud. But uh, I think many people will feel the way I do, which is a little bit daunted by the idea of becoming a Doth Yomist and <laughs> studying a page a day for what is, I guess, what, a seven plus year cycle to get through the whole thing. Is there a way to, uh, do you have a recommendation for first steps in approaching the Talmud? Yeah. Um, abandon all fear, uh, abandon all trepidation, and abandon any notion that you are going to understand anything, not just in the first day or the first year, but honestly in the first decade and arguably in the first lifetime. The point here isn't to you know start reading and then seven pages in say like, oh, I, I get the Talmud now. The point is precisely that it's so, you know, vexing, that it's so convoluted, that it's so cryptic, that it requires so many layers of understanding. Because the thing that we say when we finished, you know, the Talmud is divided into 63 masechtat or tractates. And we have a saying that we say every time that we finish one of them, which is, we will return to you, tractate so-and-so, volume so-and-so, and you will return to us. The idea, which I think is in of itself, a fantastic life lesson is you're not here for instant gratification. This is the greatest self-help lesson the Talmud could teach us. You're not here for instant gratification. This isn't the Ozempic of, of spiritual and emotional ah. growth. You're not taking one shot and then you're going to lose 46 pounds. Well, one shot a week. Right. You're here uh, because you're going on this journey and you will go on it again and again and again. And the daunting is the point because you're not supposed to come to any immediate conclusions. You are training your mind. You're training yourself to think in different ways. The way that the Talmud thinks and, and speaks is fantastic because it's these arguments and, and often it's these arguments based on these seemingly insane hypotheticals. Well, uh, you say a kosher sukkah is this, that, and the other. Well, what if I put some, you know, uh, palm fronds on an elephant? Would he be considered a sukkah? And you read this and you think, wow, what is even going on here? But then you realize that by taking all these hypotheticals, by discussing the minute details of every little thing, by really trying to grasp the meaning of, of everything and anything around them, these rabbis are literally making sense of the world. And that's a task of a lifetime. It's a habit to get into, and it's a super healthy habit. All that said, when you do Daf Yomi, do you have days where you wake up and you're like, damn, abstruse, legal conversation, <laughs> and other days where you're like, yes, poop story? Only, only days that end with a Y. Um, <laughs> yes, no, everything is abstruse, legal, dense. Uh, sometimes, and, and this is part of the Talmud's amazing beauty. Our friend Jonathan Rosen, who was our guest on the show not too long ago, said it's, it's actually inaccurate to call the Talmud a book. Uh, he described it as a, a drift net for catching God, which I think is very beautiful. Beautiful. Sometimes you get lucky. You get like a really, really saucy story. Uh, my, my 
book opens with one. Uh, it is about a farting prostitute, uh, and it is beautiful and profoundly moving. But sometimes you get these discussions, and you stop and you ask yourself, well, what am I supposed to learn from here? And then you go, you know, for a run, or you go kind of, you know, meander, and then you think about it. And all of a sudden, this tremendous insight just descends on you because nothing in the Talmud is, is, is superfluous. Nothing is, is tedious. It is all just an invitation to, to look deeper, which honestly, in an age where so much is moving so fast and you're paying zero attention to detail when you're so, you know, when you're amusing yourself to death, when you're on the couch watching Netflix, when alerts come on your phone every 3.8 seconds, to have the luxury of saying, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to think about one little thing in the most minute way possible. And that just makes you a better observer of the world. It just kind of really also cleanses and heals your soul because that slowing down, that being here now, to quote another great Jewish rabbi, really matters. Well said. That's that's beautiful. And our listeners can get more of that eloquence in your new book, How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. So, Leo, we have a special offer for our listeners, right? A very special offer. Indeed, look, if you, uh, if you like this podcast, if you like all things Jewish, if you like self-help, if you want to learn a little bit more about the Talmud in a way that's completely accessible, totally fun, and chock full of, of stories and, and insights by much, much, much wiser people than, than any of us here in this show, here's what you should do. Pre-order the book. You could pre-order it from the publisher. We'll put a link in the show notes. You could go to your local bookstore, which is always best. You could even go to that other bookseller, the one that rhymes with Jamazon. Uh, and once you've pre-ordered the book, here's what you do. Take a picture of your receipt with your smartphone or screen grab or any way you want. And then go to tabletm.ag slash pre-order. That's T-A-B-L-E-T-M dot A-G slash pre-order. There's a really short form. You'll give us your email. You'll put the photo of your pre-order. And once we have your email address, we will invite you to a super cool virtual event featuring a bunch of your favorite past unorthodox guests talking about the Talmud. And you'll also enter to win one of 10 special packages curated by yours truly that will make your Jewish journey more meaningful, more beautiful, and I think, you know, more fun. Amazing. Liel, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for, for coming to the studio um, and doing this interview with us. Thank you for having me. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. Okay, to the mailbox. Our mailbox has been overflowing. This is a this is a truly literal mailbox. Just kidding. It's mostly emails. We haven't gone through our mailbox in a very long time on air, and we just wanted to catch up with our listeners and see what they had to say. Our listeners can follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpod and also send us DMs like this. This one comes in from Andrea. She says, I love this podcast so much. The amount of time I have laughed out loud or felt so moved I've cried in public or at work. The amount of times I felt so seen and validated. The amount of times I've had a profound realization because of something you guys said or felt such a strong connection to my Jewish community. You guys rule. Thank you for all you do. I love this note so much. It's incredible. That is so beautiful. But but I think the next note, Josh and Melina, I think you should read the next <laughs> note. Uh, long distance Chavara, five-star rating out of 100. Just kidding, <laughs> out of five. I've listened since the beginning and never miss a show. I'm especially happy with the addition of Joshua Molina. Aww. As are we. I'm delighted to hear that. I love that the J Crew keeps me up to date on the news of the Jews and connects me to my people while the military has our family living all over the world. I adore the community Unorthodox provides via the podcast and Facebook group. Thank you. No, thank you. Uh, that's a lovely thing. I, I don't really have a sense, actually. I will say I don't have a strong sense of how I'm doing. I know you guys haven't kicked me out yet, but it's nice to it's nice to be name checked. I appreciate we give you, it. We give you five stars, Joshua. Five stars. Thank you. Write in and tell Joshua Molina how he's doing. Yeah, but I'm, if we're really going to do that, I will say uh, no holds barred. I'm that rare actor who I mean, look, I'd rather get a good review than a bad review, but I do <laughs> revel in the occasional 
terrible thing that somebody has to say about me. In fact, once I did a short-lived TV show and I got a call from the show's PR person saying, did you bring bad reviews of the pilot to the set and read them out loud? I said, oh, yeah, I did do that. Okay, please don't do that. We love bad <laughs> not reviews. All the, not all the other actors were amused. So uh, give me your best and your worst. I'm happy to hear what you think of me. All right, so send your, your best or worst reviews to Joshua Molina, and he will not only read them on the air, but also uh, in, in true Twitter fashion, will respond he will to respond. those that he finds. I'll probably amplify the bad ones. <laughs> Silently appreciate the good ones. So send your Molina reviews to unorthodoxatabamag.com. And also, please do review us on Apple Podcasts. It does help people find us. We have some five-star reviews I want to read. One of them says, enjoying every minute, which is like the nicest thing a Jewish person has ever said about like no complaints. We also have some notes about some of our older episodes. Liel, do you want to read the one about Ranch Camp? Stephanie, Liel, and Joshua, I wanted to express my thanks to Liel for coming out to the JCC Ranch Camp and highlighting the importance of Jewish camp life, especially in the Rocky Mountains. I am the brother-in-law of Courtney Jacobson, hey, who is featured on the podcast. Our connection to Ranch Camp are very deep. My wife, Brooke, and Courtney's grandpa was on the Ranch Camp board of directors and their dad, my father-in-law, was a camper and counselor there for over a decade, including as a wrangler, which is really, those are the real cool ones. Brooke and I met Ranch Camp and got married there. Oh my God, it's amazing. And our wow. kids will attend soon, starting with our seven-year-old daughter next year. Camp is a truly magical place that has had a huge impact on our family. And it was really special hearing Liel's take on the podcast. I've been a fan since day one and love Unorthodox deeply. Keep up the great work. All my best, Nathan Stern. Nathan, love it. And we will see the youngest Stern at Ranch Camp. Uh, in just, what, eight short months from now? This next one comes in about our conversation with um, Coach Bill Courtney and his podcast, An Army of Normal Folks. This is from Aaron Frank of West Hartford, Connecticut. Hi, when Joshua was explaining to Coach Courtney about epigenetics and how our heritage and our suffering is passed in ourselves, I was thinking the best way I've heard it explained is that Jews don't have history, we have memory. Invite Coach Courtney to a Seder where he will see us present-day Jews were slaves in Egypt, not our ancestors, thousands of years ago. And speaking of memory and epigenetics, perhaps the reason Jewish men don't like to sweep is because of the Spanish Inquisition. In order to help find hidden Jews, the Spaniards passed a law that every front porch of every house had to be swept on Saturday. So a Jew could violate the Sabbath or risk his life. No wonder Joshua didn't want to sweep up after the poker game. It's genetic. Thank you. Thanks. And thank you, Aaron. Thanks I for love the, the idea that John Hamm is your, is your like, Shabbos Goy. Yeah. Your Inquisition <laughs> yeah, Shabbos exactly. Goy. I mean, his name is John Hamm. So <laughs> um, We are getting such nice feedback on our new series, Beautifully Jewish. So please keep sharing Yay. your photos in the Unorthodox Facebook group. Everyone was just sharing photos of their sukkah. It was wonderful. And if you share on social media, use the hashtag Beautifully Jewish or just email them to us. We did get a question in that I wanted to solve for people. Someone wrote, Dear Unorthodox, I listened twice to yesterday's show, but I missed the end of the sentence about unicorn something used in building the tabernacle. What word was that? The word unicorn was unicorn hides. <laughs> Hides. Uh, the correct uh, word is uh, hides. Uh, Orot uh, is the Hebrew. Unicorn hides is a translation of, of what was used to build the Mishkan. Uh, this note came in on Facebook from super listener Ellen Kahn Zager. She wrote, it's been a long time since I found myself weeping while listening to the podcast. You got me, Stephanie and Tanya. It's Shabbat Sukkot, and I got to the part where you're talking to the rabbi about how he was there with the sukkah when you most needed him in the kahila. Yes, it's what we all need, the love and support of a community, our community, especially when we're most vulnerable. Shabbat Shalom and Hag Sameach. Thank you, Ellen, for that for that note. Um, and we're so glad that resonated. And Ellen didn't just send a beautiful note. She sent us a photo of herself, teary-eyed, which, you know what? Extra points, Ellen. And 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 all of you, we want to see you. Send us, send us your photos. Say hi. And now there's one more mystery that we want the J crew to solve. Melina. Yeah. Take this one away. Debbie Holcomb says or asks, has there ever been a discussion on the podcast or here, meaning the Facebook group, about the letter K, as in those torch-carrying KKKers or Karl Marx? Back around the 1930s, my grandfather legally had his name changed from Karl to Charles because of the K. His Yiddish name was Karpel. I don't remember, and now my elders are gone. I went to Google with no luck. Thank you for any information or links addressing this issue. 
Okay, I have literally never heard this. I have a belt buckle with a K on it from my my great uncle Tom, because whose last name is Cutlow. <laughs> so K resonates with me too. But this is crazy. I want to know if anyone has heard anything about this. Like the K has like gone out of favor with the Jews. I like that people are changing their names so they don't have the K like Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> We'll see if this this hits this hits a chord with anyone. Um, as always, send us emails on orthodoxatabamag.com. Leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. We would love to play them on the show. is a journalist and the creator and screenwriter of the new Israeli TV series, Normal. If his last name sounds familiar, that's because Lior is the son of the renowned Israeli actor and writer, Asi Dayan, and the grandson of legendary Israeli military leader and politician, Moshe Dayan. Normal is a semi-autobiographical series and tells the story of Noam, a 24-year-old columnist struggling to establish himself as a writer and not lose his mind in the process. This is a challenging task because his father is famous not only for his talent as a writer, but also for his outrageous borderline personality. When Noam hits rock bottom, fueled by a deadly combination of drugs, he finds his own route to normality in the unlikeliest of places, the psych ward. Normal, which is airing on Highflix, is based on the true story of Lior's life, so we'll let him tell you more about it. Here's our interview with Lior Dayan. Lior Dayan, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It is really, really fun to be here talking with you. You know, I think a lot of us think of Israel as sort of like a small town in many ways. And when I saw your name, I was like, of course, Moshe Dayan, like, of course, these people have grandkids and like they're around and in the mix. And then, of course, I started watching the series Normal which is actually sort of like all about that, right? What it's like to have this really, really big name and family and legacy. So will you tell us a little bit about growing up in this family? The Diane family is known to be the Israeli Kennedy. That's how we are referred to in Israel. But you take the Kennedys with an Israeli twist, you see? <laughs> that's, that's the main thing here, <laughs> you see? The Kennedys, they have their own elegance, but if you take them to Israeli places, they will be Israeli. But listen, for me, yes, Israel is a young country. So the roots of the country is the same together with the roots of my family. And a lot of people like, like to compare the evolution of the Dayan family to the evolution of Israel as a nation, for good and for bad. So a big part of the identity of us as Israelis is also a personal moment within my family. So we watched the show, which I absolutely fucking loved. Most of it takes place in a closed ward in a, in, a, in a mental hospital. You would expect this to be really dramatic, and it is. Uh, you would expect it to be kind of like a little bit shocking, and there are definitely scenes that are. What you don't expect is for it to be incredibly funny. When you sit and you think up this character who is a, a, a thinly veiled version of you, I believe. How do you even approach a project like this? Where do you begin? It was important for me and for Asaf Korman, who also wrote it with me, and he's actually the director, to give a different look at uh, mental hospitals, at uh, psych awards. And as Udi Ashkenazi there says that it would be a better world if a lot of people would go to psychiatric uh, hospitals as much as they go to spa hotels and resorts. So we made a choice that it would be an inviting color. It wouldn't be dark colors like it usually is. And yeah, it's not such a horrible place, meaning it does save lives a lot of the time that it needs to be fed. There's a fantastic, very meta moment when Udi tells his son, who's desperate to get out on the very first evening, that he should look at the psych ward as an amusement park for writers, which I thought was kind of brilliant and obviously a reflection of what you found in the psych ward. Obviously, it gave you the raw material to create the 
series? Actually happened in real life. My father is, okay, from everything, he's a story junkie. And he told me, you need to do everything in order to go into stories and go to the places that you get the best stories. So in a way, yes, the Psycho World is the, the amusement park and it's the greatest ride for a storyteller. And yeah, you also see Noam coming to that and sometimes he's, he's enjoying the ride, sometimes he's scared from the ride, and sometimes it's funny rides. So as, as I told you before we started rolling, had, had the privilege of, of knowing your father, uh, who was very, very kind to me when I was a, a small child. And in my mind, and I think the mind of, of many, truly one of the greatest Israeli filmmakers, artists of all time. And this has nothing to do with like being a Dayan. This is just, you know, a man of like amazing and tremendous creativity. How conscious are you as you're making this, that you're not just making art, which is so fucking difficult under the best circumstances, but also doing it while grappling with him. I am conscious of that. It's hard not to be. I can't see a way not to be. Normal started from a book of short stories I published in 2012. And I thought that only when my father has died, I could have done it in a way. You see, so it does, it is something that goes in the air and I'm aware of it. And to say nothing of casting your own mother as your own mother on yeah, the show. Yeah, that's... Did you make her audition? <laughs> Listen, with my mother, I've never been to the filming with my mother. Also, I need to say a lot, a big part of, of her lines, she made it. Sometimes you like look at something and you say, hey, you know what? Art is the power and the energy to change things in the inner self of people. And I can say that I saw my mother getting some kind of freedom through doing those hard scenes. When I saw it and when I heard about it from Asaf Korman, the director, it blew my mind about the, the power that art is as a therapy tool. In general, writing a TV show about something that happened in your past is basically a time machine. It gives you the opportunity to be a tourist in your own reality that has been a long time ago. But as a tourist, sometimes you don't want to go to the tour. You see, you want to stay in bed <laughs> at the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> when you were growing up or starting to have artistic ambitions, did your dad's legacy, was that a pressure and a burden or a bar you felt you had to live up to or something that inspired you more? I didn't really want to, let's say, to go into the art field as I wanted to talk to my father. You see, my father didn't talk about anything, anything but writing. I mean, very, very radical, talking only about only about uh, Kafka and Hanoch Levin. And it was obvious to me that if I want to talk to him, I need to go into writing. It's actually, it's very sweet. It's very touching. That, that was his love language. And if you wanted to communicate with him. Yeah, in, in a way, normal is also about that. And it's about the mass and the gravity of figures like that. And you know what's the funny thing? is that I'm only a second generation. My father got it even bigger and harder with his father. He had most done all his life. And he was like, yeah. And you know what he told me? He told me one time, told me, just so you know, it will never go away. You will always, always. And I remember one time my father got third time life achievement award. He got in the Jerusalem Festival, then in, in the Ophir. It's like the Israeli Academy Award. And then he went into the article about it, the site, and it was the first, the first talkback was, and he told me, come to see, it's only because he's the son of Moshe Dayan. That's <laughs> after 50 years of making the best movies in Israel. And then he said to me, listen, it's chronic. It's never going to disappear, <laughs> just so you know. So in a way, in my family, the fatherhood, it's a disease that goes from generation to generation. The gravity of fathers is too much in, in, our, in my family. I think it comes also with tremendous benefits because I, I could pay you and the show, I think, probably the greatest compliment I can. You know, there was something 
about your father's movies. Your father made movies that told the fucking truth, no matter how uncomfortable it was. And it was a very, very, very brave and liberating thing to see when mm. I first saw Agfa, you know, his, his masterpiece from 1992. I was like, oh my God, here's someone who's telling me the truth. And I felt the exact same way when I saw Normal. I was like, here's someone who's not afraid to tell me the truth, even if it's sometimes really hard to look at. This person's being honest. Thank you. That's amazing to hear that because I need to say that more of anything, my, my father's legacy to me was always be truthful tell the truth, say the truth, no matter what. I mean, I'm talking about in a very, very radical way. So the truth is something that I was raised about. And also the truth as it appears in art and how much the truth is important to art. Even when it comes to movies like the most popular movie in Israel, Givat Chalfon, that's a Givat Chalfon I know now, that's Usually, that's always the most popular. It's only about his service in the Israeli military. And it's about putting the, the truth about the IDF, by the way, in spite of everything that my grandfather had to say. Right. This is really weird, but I just looked over here. I'm in our podcast studio, and I want to show you these little action figures. <laughs> They're little bobbleheads, and one of them is your grandfather. Is that so weird? Because in a way that he's wrecking, like, I actually don't, is this Ben-Gurion? I don't really know who this is. Yeah. For the record, okay. I, I have a begging. Begging. Like, Diane, like, everyone yeah. knows the eye patch. There's, like, there's a scene in Mad Men where the poster is hanging in someone's room. He's, he's iconic. Not so long ago, there was an episode in The Simpsons when Homer is, I can't remember why, but he's going to the Jewish heaven. <laughs> and he sees Moshe, and he sees Gal Gadot, and he sees Moshe Dayan. You see? <laughs> so, and he tells something, yeah, listen, uh, that um, action figures, it's interesting, because it's the only one that hasn't been a prime minister. Ben-Gurion has been a prime minister. Begin has been a prime minister. Golda has been a prime minister. He's the only That's one. That's so funny. But until now, yeah, I know, because I've been a lot in the States. His name is still something. Is something is more known than Ben Gurion to a lot of people. I mean, especially in Jewish crowd. Everyone recognizes Diane, the eye patch. It's in a way, it's almost there's something very visceral about how identifiable he is. And so I imagine that he looms even larger in that way. For for sure, there was um, a docu series about him not so long ago, and one of the people, uh, Uri Avneri, is one of the a very famous journalist in, in Israel in the last decade. And he said, if you take any picture with Moshe Dayander, your eye would immediately go to him <laughs> because of the eye patch. And I feel that it's more than that, that he was very successful in making the disadvantage into advantage. He's amazing in that. Taking the disadvantage of not having eye and making it like his signature thing and being known all over the world with that. So, Lior, what's next? Now Now that you got this amazing and totally compelling story out there, what's the next mountain to climb? Other, of course, than running for office, which you're announcing here no, today that no, you're no, doing. No, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beg and, and let's, let's just go there. But, uh, yeah, so I'm writing another TV show and continue to write in the newspaper, in my newspaper, and also working on another book that probably, that hopefully, one of the team would become a script in the future. All our listeners can watch Normal on Highflix, our favorite Jewish streaming platform. <laughs> and Lior Dayan, it is amazing to talk with you. I look forward to getting your bobblehead. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so nice. Thank you for inviting me. This week, we are turning our Mazel Tovs over to the listeners. Here goes. This one is from Alyssa Lewis in the Philadelphia suburbs. The main line, I assume, and here is what she writes. In February, I wrote to request a Mazel Tov as our son Harry, great name, Harry, became a bar mitzvah. Despite many challenges, having grown in confidence greatly from the success of his bar mitzvah, he was able to attend a specialized 
overnight camp for the first time this summer with great result. Yay, Harry, that's amazing. Likewise, his younger brother, Ben, who also showed great growth and maturity this year, completed a successful first stint at a wonderful URJ camp. Having not attended overnight camp myself, I blame and credit the unorthodox crew for encouraging me to try this for both of our boys. We are very proud to say Mazel Tov to them. Alyssa, we are also very proud of Harry and of Ben and of you guys for raising them so wonderfully. Rock on. Way to go, fellas. This comes from Marlon Henry, and she says, I have been an avid listener of the Unorthodox podcast since your first episode, and have also been hooked on Take One since the beginning. I haven't had the opportunity to give a shout out to anyone yet, but I must give a great big mazel tov to Kayla Bisbee of the Jewish Federation, JCC of Greater New Haven, on her recent promotion to Director of Jewish Family Engagement. Kayla's efforts to engage young families with our organization has been remarkable. Through a reimagined PJ Library program and the launch of new initiatives such as Shalom Baby, Kayla has grown engagement and participation of young families at least 10 times greater than what it was three years ago and has just secured a competitive grant from the Grinspoon Foundation for the third year in a row. The partnership with her programs, both internally and throughout the greater New Haven community, is an example of what our organization is all about. Thank you, Kayla, for an amazing job. Well done. Right on. Right on, Kayla Bisbee. Way to go. Amazing mazel tov to everyone. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hayes, with Jerome Risquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Get your Unorthodox merch at tabletstudios.com. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us emails at unorthodox.tabletmag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-5704-869. Until next week, shalom, friends.